Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. So hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today I'm joined by Olivia Enos. She's the new Washington Director of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, or also known as CFHK. CFHK defends political prisoners, supports free media, and supports the people of Hong Kong's right to live peacefully under the terms of the Basic Law, which was put into effect in 1997. Prior to taking on her newest role at CFHK, Olivia, she was a Forbes. She published pieces at the intersection of international human rights challenges and national security issues. She was a contributor. She also spent nine years at the Heritage Foundation, the Asian Studies Program. So, Olivia, I'm very pleased to have you here with me today to talk about your new role and what is happening today in Hong Kong especially in the context of the harsh and repressive national security law that China, mainland China, imposed on Hong Kong over two years ago in June of 2020. So, Olivia, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on today, Dan. It's really a delight to be here. And, you know, in answer to your question, uh, I got interested in human rights issues in Asia my junior year of college. I took a course on the negative impacts of communism worldwide, and it really left a mark on me. It made me realize, wow, a lot of the things I thought were relegated to the history books, like gulags or concentration camps, unfortunately aren't left to the history books. And we see today, you know, very severe human rights violations happening in places like North Korea, um, Burma, and I, I would say, you know, of course, front and center for many in people's minds, China. And so I'm really delighted. I, as you said, I spent the last, you know, almost a decade at the Heritage Foundation working on human rights issues in Asia, but I'm really delighted to devote this next season to such an important subject, Hong Kong, because I think Hong Kong is a really visible representation of what happens when the U.S. says human rights issues are sort of secondary to some of our security concerns that we have in a foreign policy context. And I think it's a warning sign for if we don't really step up our efforts to tackle threats to fundamental human rights, you will see continued erosions in liberty all across the globe. So I'm really excited to be at CFHK these days. Um, I'm, I think, in week four. And so really hitting the ground running and, and excited to be here. Tell us what is CFHK and what is it doing? Yeah, so um, CFHK, or the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, has been around for the past 18 months. This is a relatively new organization. The head of the organization is Mark Clifford. He previously um, served on the board for Next Digital, which, as many people know, was the parent company for Apple Daily. And we just saw within the last day Jimmy Lai facing you know, a total sham trial in Hong Kong um, over a fraud case. 
case and he's serving out time in prison. And this is something that's very personal to my boss because he lived in Hong Kong for 18 years. And so CFHK, I think, has been best known for really pressing for accountability in the form of sanctions and also pressing for the release of political prisoners like Jimmy Lai. But I think we're looking to expand that mission. I'm the first Washington director um, for CFHK. And so we're going to be looking at a wide range of issues like how do we provide humanitarian pathways in the form of priority to refugee relief to Hong Kongers? How do we make sure that religious freedom, that press freedom, that internet freedom are things that are preserved um, within Hong Kong? And how do we make sure that the decision that was made after the national security law went into effect to decertify Hong Kong's special status, to say that Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently autonomous as to merit separate treatment under U.S. law, how do we make sure that's actually being implemented? Because I think there are some concerning abrogations like the continued existence of the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Offices, which perform no consular functions, but all their employees receive diplomatic-like immunities. Uh, how do we make sure that we're actually treating Hong Kong as, you know, quite similar, if not the same as mainland China? So yeah, those are a lot of the things that we're thinking about these days. Why don't you give our listeners a little bit of context? When you think about what is Hong Kong and why does Hong Kong matter? And what did China agree to in 1997? And what what, what was the basic law that it operated under starting in 1997? And for how long was that supposed to go on? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, Hong Kong was handed over by the British back to China in 1997. And then the basic law, as you referenced, was put into place. And the basic law was supposed to ensure a one country, two systems framework that preserved the capitalist, freedom-loving society that Hong Kong had enjoyed under British rule and was supposed to guarantee that, you know, for a very long time, which China then cut short. And they cut that short after protests in 2019. I think many of us watched on our TV screens and saw as millions of Hong Kongers took to the streets to protest the ways in which they perceived Beijing or the Chinese Communist Party infringing on their rights and on their liberties. And in 2019, there was a proposed extradition law, which would make it so that if there were specific court cases that happened in Hong Kong, an individual could then be extradited to China. And we know that in China, there's no rule of law, but prior to the national security law going into effect, which went into effect in 2020, there was rule of law in Hong Kong. And since 2020, when the national security law went in, into effect, and let's be clear, Beijing put the national security law into effect because they saw any sort of unrest in Hong Kong as a threat to their core interests. And I think the Chinese Communist Party's core interests are to maintain internal stability and to maintain territorial integrity. And uh, there's a great book on this called China's Search for Security that lays this out really clearly. So they put the national security law into place. And since the national security law, there has been a chilling effect on civil and political liberties. I would argue there have been some impacts even on the business community. And it has led to many Hong Kongers, particularly those who were active in the pro-democracy movement to flee. And that brings us to the modern day where we're continuing to see major transgressions by the Chinese Communist Party of 
those fundamental human rights that we all resonate with. And we have unfortunately just seen so many of our friends jailed and so many of those fundamental forms of freedom undermined. Okay. And tell me about what has been the reaction from the United States and others to China imposing this harsh national security law on Hong Kong? Yeah. So there was, you know, for the longest time, the United States treated Hong Kong as sufficiently autonomous as to merit separate treatment. This meant that they received separate treatment in the realm of trade and finance, in the realm of travel, for example, being able to come to the U.S. There were so many ways in which Hong Kong was treated separately because the system wasn't the same as mainland China. But after the national security law went into effect, the U.S. government said, nope, Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently autonomous. And so what we've seen since then is a disentangling and and essentially an attempt to treat Hong Kong as no different from mainland China. And, you know, I think that the U.S. government was strong in its condemnations of the CCP's attempts and successes in undermining freedom in Hong Kong. We've seen several tranches of sanctions against officials, including the current chief executive, John Lee. And we've also seen, um, you know, consideration in Congress of other various measures. Um, there were several acts that were passed, um, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, as well as the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. And then we ultimately saw former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying decertifying Hong Kong's special status, that being reaffirmed by the president in the form of an executive order, and a really fundamental shift in how the U.S. views and treats Hong Kong. Unfortunately, I think the business community hasn't caught up to the fact that the U.S. government doesn't treat Hong Kong as separate from Beijing. And it's really unfortunate that actually upcoming next week, many high-profile business leaders from Morgan Stanley, um, from Goldman Sachs, from BlackRock and others are planning to travel to Hong Kong to you know, effectively bless a sanctioned, U.S.-sanctioned chief executive in Hong Kong, John Lee, and they're going to do so next week. We hope they won't, but unfortunately, I think they will. So how many political prisoners are there in Hong Kong? So there's over 1,300 political prisoners, and in the wake of the protests, there were over 10,000 people who were taken into custody. But right now, there's around 1,300, according to um, the Hong Kong Democracy Council. So it is a substantial amount, and I think a lot of the ones that immediately come to mind for a lot of people are folks like Jimmy Lai, who I mentioned earlier, but also Joshua Wong, who's a you know, very young and prominent pro-democracy advocate. And then also, you know, there are several religious prisoners of conscience, including Jimmy Lai, but also Cardinal Zen. He's a 90-year-old man who has served as a faithful cardinal in the Catholic Church for a very long time. And he's about to face trial or is facing trial as we speak. It's unbelievable. What can our listeners do to help political prisoners in Hong Kong? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that our listeners should be urging members of Congress to adopt individuals within Hong Kong as political prisoners that they are advocating for. Um, Members of Congress can adopt them, and that gives them the responsibility to go to counterparts in state and say, every single time that you are meeting with a Chinese counterpart, 
you should be raising and pressing for the release of these specific political prisoners. And even beyond this, there's another like lesser known government body or pseudo government body called the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom that also has the ability to adopt religious prisoners of conscience. Um, and so I think, you know, being able to adopt them or encouraging commissioners to adopt them has been very successful in other political prisoner release cases. For example, in the case of Pastor Andrew Brunson in Turkey, uh, when a USERF commissioner was able to actually push successfully for his release. So I think these are things that can be done. One other thing that we're doing at CFHK is we actually have reached out to a variety of Catholic schools. We've sent them postcards and we've asked the students to write letters to Jimmy Lai. Jimmy, while he's been in prison, has been doing uh, religious-based prison art. And so we had his art printed on a postcard and had kids send him notes of encouragement because what I've heard from folks who know people who are political prisoners is that for a lot of them, just knowing that they are remembered is so important, especially if you're in solitary confinement or you've been in prison for a long time. It's easy to think that you're forgotten, but I think we can serve as one of those agents of change that reminds them that they're not at all forgotten. So should there be more consequences for mainland China for what they did in Hong Kong? And if so, what should those be? Yes, absolutely. I think not only consequences for people who are within the Chinese Communist Party from mainland China, but also consequences to those in Hong Kong who are just going along with the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. Another effort that CFHK is undertaking is um, we are currently looking for members of Congress that are willing to press the administration on tranches of sanctions that would target prosecutors from Hong Kong. Um, many of these prosecutors, they're a little bit lower on the totem pole, and we think that by sanctioning them for pursuing national security law cases, for denying bail to Jimmy Lai and others, um, that these types of activities should be held to account and that we should start with prosecutors, but we shouldn't just stop there. We should target judges. We should target those who are at the highest levels, the upper echelons of Hong Kong's judiciary who are going along with Beijing's bidding. Um, so I think that there's a need for more sustained efforts to hold individuals accountable in the form of sanctions. And I think even beyond this, it shouldn't just be the U.S., that's doing this. It needs to be in concert with the European Union, with the United Kingdom, with Canada, with Australia, with Japan, with like-minded allies who share our concern about deteriorations in liberty and autonomy in Hong Kong. Well, this has been great, Olivia. Thank you so much for what you're doing. What's the website if people want to go visit your website? For those wanting to learn more about the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, you can check us out at www.thecfhk.org. And also check us out on Twitter, too. One other thing that I would draw your attention to is uh, we've been doing projections on walls. And one of them that we did was ahead of this financial conference calling on business leaders not to grant undue credence to, to John Lee and to others in Hong Kong who are undermining freedom there. And so business leaders should think twice about whether or not they want to attend that conference um, because that is coming right on the heels of the conviction of Jimmy Lai and his fraud trial. And, you know, free societies don't have political prisoners, certainly not free financial centers. So hopefully they will change their minds and make a different decision. Okay, great. 
Thanks so much, Olivia. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 